of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness, and instead of mourning, a garment of praise, instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. I delight greatly in the Lord, my soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness. Lord, we just uh, come to you today, into your presence, into this building, but we are your church. Lord, uh, all the members of your body, as we meet together, Lord, let us lift up our praises to you. Let us sing our song of praise to you, Lord. Lord, as we uh, are grieving as we are mourning. Lord, I just ask you to turn that into praise as we worship you today, as we listen to your word. Lord, just soften our hearts and meet us in our need right now, Lord, just to touch us, comfort us. And Lord, just as we go through the rest of the service, Lord, I just ask you to let us hear your word today in your name. Amen. team and welcome to Creekside Church. If you're here as a guest, this is your very first time, I just want to extend a special welcome to you and ask that on the bulletin, uh, there is an, a third flap there on the bulletin. As our guest this morning, just ask that you would take some time to fill that out. And then as the offering goes by a little bit later, if you just put that in there, uh, we'd love to have a record of your attendance, so extend a little special welcome to you. And also, just for those of our regular church family, that flap's not just for visitors, so if you have a prayer request, you want to be in a small group, you have something you're interested in, how you can get involved and serve, then fill that out and put it in, and we'll try to get in contact with you. I have a few announcements, which uh, those who know me don't that I don't really like to make a lot of announcements but uh, we have some that I have to let you know it's first of the year happy new year happy new year all right good glad that you're at least awake for that part of it it's good to have you here on the first Sunday of January 2020, the first Sunday of the new decade. So we're glad that you're worshiping with us this morning. We have a couple of things, housekeeping details. First of all, I think, or where are John? Yeah, John and Ruth Bloom, would you just please stand up? So uh, John and Ruth have a long-standing history with this congregation. So they have been serving for 32 years, is that correct? At Emmanuel Mission in Northern Arizona among the Native American people, and so we just uh, want to say thank you to them. Many here have been down to Emmanuel Mission. I have not, but many here have. We've supported them, and many do. So great to have them there with, uh, here with us this morning. Also want to uh, say, I guess, yeah, all right, yeah, let's clap. <laughs> Dustin and Molly, 
Molnar, they're going to be leaving us to head to Wyoming. Is that correct? Got it right? Okay, so this is our last Sunday, so please extend a special thank you to them. You can stay in touch with us. There's a thing called the Internet, so uh, there is, uh, you, can, you can stay in touch with us. So we're grateful for their participation in our body, and uh, we will miss them greatly, but we're glad and happy for them. Shens, that's, and if you don't know what shens are, I don't know what shens are either. I, don't, I, I read it in the Bible. Uh, it is in the Bible. There's a word called shen in the Bible, and uh, there's a, it's, it's the above 60 crowd, 65 and up crowd in our congregation. They're just the party animals, so they have a party coming up on the 18th, and so if you want to be a part of that party, you need to sign up. There's some misinformation in the bulletin, so just sign up. Okay, that's all I'm going to say about that. I want to challenge you to read in the bulletin, preferably not in the next few moments, but there is a challenge for a Bible reading program for this new year and this new decade. So it's intended, really, it's coming kind of from our Sunday school people. We want you to take some time to spend some time reading on your own, personally, sure, but with your kids, your grandkids, and then to discuss what you've been reading. So that's a, a challenge there, and you can read the information in your bulletin, and there are those programs, are copies of them are on the table out there, the guest table. The last thing I want to say is that on the 19th of January, we're planning a baptism. So if you're interested in baptism or know somebody who is, please contact us ASAP, as soon as possible. Uh, contact Megan, email her. Her, wet, her email address is in the bulletin, and we will be in contact with you, have some details to work out. So if you're interested in that, please let us know. Okay, now I'm going to take a breath and pray. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your goodness, and I pray that you would be our vision for this decade, this new year. And I ask that as we take some time to worship you through the study of your word, that your spirit would speak to our hearts. And I ask, Lord, that this passage and the truths from this passage would not just become information, and for many of us it's not going to be new information, but I pray that it would be transformative. I pray that it would be useful by your spirit's power to change us and to be the people you want us to be, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to look at a sign, okay? Do you see this sign? Yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. If you can read, you can tell your kids are dismissed, and uh, the, the kids can read. They can be dismissed by themselves. Alec, you are not a child. You cannot be dismissed. <laughs> what is this? I love you too, brother. All right. Okay, I want you to look at this uh, symbol. Anybody ever seen that symbol? Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, some cars have it on their dashboard. It's a warning sign, right? A warning indicator light, I guess, to be technically correct. It indicates that your tire pressure is low. At least there is a sensor in your tire pressures that says this is true. We have one car that does that, I guess. The other ones are too old, I guess, maybe that they don't indicate that. But as we start the new decade, as we start the new year, I was thinking, you know, vision in a church is a lot like tire pressure in 
a tire, it leaks. It leaks. And so for the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at these sermons as this warning indicator light that we should evaluate our vision, our understanding of what God has called us as individuals and as a local church to do as a body of Christ so that we can see this uh, and check our vision pressure, if you will, and see if we need to make any adjustments to our vision in order to be all that God calls us to be as God's people in the next, next year and in the next decade. I, I have a question for you. As you walked into the worship center today, above the door in the worship center, there are some words written. How many people can tell me what those words say? Leading people everywhere to a devoted relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what the words say. Now, some of you didn't even see them. I, that's fine. I understand that. But they're there. I mean, they're supposed to be seen. But isn't it true that many of us can't even recite what we have articulated as the vision for our church, let alone actually do it? Now, some of us are doing it, regardless of what we read. But in order for us to kind of all get on the same page, we want to take a couple of weeks and, and look at what is it that God has called us. There's some things we need to know. and There's some things we need to do in order to be the people that God wants us to be, in order to lead people everywhere to a devoted relationship with Jesus Christ. And so this morning, we're going to just launch into a passage of Scripture that articulates for us some of what we need to know and some of what we need to do so that we can be more effective, more fruitful, and leading people everywhere to a devoted relationship with Jesus Christ. And I've selected for this morning Luke's Gospel, chapter 10, beginning with verse 25, a very familiar passage to many of us. But in this passage, we're going to look at what God calls us to do. And Jesus has an interaction with a lawyer. And this lawyer asked Jesus a question. And Jesus' responses to this lawyer's question provide us with insight into the reality that God's children are to love each other sacrificially as a function of loving God supremely. When we're loving God supremely, we will be loving other people in a sacrificial, and I'm going to use this word, selfish way, because the text says, love your neighbor as yourself. And so I want you to look with me, if you will, at these three responses to the lawyer's questions in Luke 10 and verses 25 through 37 that compels us to love God supremely and to love our neighbor sacrificially. I'm in the text of Luke chapter 10. If you have a device, a notebook, a, a, a you know, electronic device, or you have your Bible, the good old, you know, typed up version, or if you want to look under the seat in front of you, there's a Bible, and I'm going to read Luke chapter 10, beginning with verse 25, down through verse 37. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and put him to the test, that is, put Jesus to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered it. And he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. 
But wishing to justify himself, he said, now, who is my neighbor? And then Jesus answered. And he said, a certain man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went off, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a certain priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, that place, and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion. And he came to him and he bandaged up his wounds and pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him and whatever more you spend when I return, I will repay you. Which of, the three, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he, that is the lawyer, said to Jesus... The one who showed mercy towards him. And Jesus said to him, go and do the same. Go and do the same. The first response that I see in the text from Jesus, and it is particularly with reference to the relationship to the neighbor, is that he confirms that that our calling as God's people is to love our neighbors. Notice there are two things that we need to have a grasp of that Jesus alerts this lawyer to. And the first is, we must know the truth. So Jesus, interacting with the lawyer, the truth is that we're to love our neighbor, or love, love God and love our neighbor as ourself. Uh, at this point, Jesus' ministry, uh, his fellow Israelites, and also especially the religious leaders of the day, were really critical And they were really upset with Jesus, kind of threatened by him. And so they were kind of hostile towards him. And it's in that environment, the skepticism and criticism, that the lawyer stands up to to test Jesus. Claim to him. The lawyer tests. What must I do? Notice the question. What must I do to gain eternal life? The idea of it's in his purview, his ability to gain eternal life if he just did the right things. So somehow, entrance into the kingdom of God is personal responsibility. Uh, Now, that's not this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life, is not an uncommon question in Jesus' day. The rich young ruler asked the same thing, Matthew chapter 19. So the test is likely to see whether Jesus gives an answer that's consistent with that of the experts. And hopefully he won't so that they can discredit him. Several weeks ago, someone came into the, into the office, and uh, this person came into the office and asked. We, at that time, we were going through a series on rediscovering God's design for marriage. And they put me to the test. I said, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by rediscovering God's design for marriage? And I said, well... What we mean by that, they had an ad that they'd clipped from the Urbandale Living Magazine. And this is this, this, this ad. What do, what do you mean by this? And so I said, well, what we mean by that is that we go back to the book of Genesis and God defines marriage as a relationship between one man and one woman for life. I failed the test of the politically correct moral revolutionaries because that person stormed out and said, that's too bad. 
I wish I'd had the foresight to say at the time, no, God said that's very good because that's what he does say in Genesis chapter uh, 1, verse 31. That's very good. Jesus was put to the test. And notice the question that Jesus puts to him. And he said to him, what is written in the law? So Jesus comes back with the test to a, with a question. And Jesus' question is not an affirmation of the man's understanding of how one gains eternal life through their own efforts. That's not what Jesus is saying here. What Jesus is doing is he's appealing to the man's understanding. See, he was an expert in the law. That's what it meant to be a lawyer. Not an expert in our judiciary system like we think of a lawyer, but he was an expert in the Old Testament law. And then he was appealing to his expertise and then pointing him to the true source of all spiritual knowledge, which was the Word of God. Now, what's the answer that the man gives? This guy's pretty astute. What he says is he quotes the Old Testament. So when he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, he's loosely quoting, not verbatim, but loosely quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, and your neighbor as yourself is Leviticus 19, 18. But here, in this passage, which is, if you look at your Bible, if you have one of those cross-references in the Bible, it'll take you to Matthew chapter 22 and to Mark chapter 12, where these words are also quoted, but Jesus is speaking in those contexts. In those contexts, Jesus is put to the test and asked, what is the greatest commandment? And he gives the same answer. But the difference is there, Jesus says, the first and greatest commandment is you shall love the Lord your God. The second is like it, your neighbor, love your neighbor as yourself. But notice here, it's just the conjunction and. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself, such that the love for one's neighbor is actually, in, in this passage, elevated to be almost equal with loving God in the sense that I say that it is the, the two go hand in hand. If you love God fully, you will love your neighbor as yourself. They're, they're commensurate with each other. They're consistent with each other. The top priority God gives humanity, the top priority God gives this body of believers, us as individuals, is to love God supremely. And when we love God supremely, we will love our neighbor sacrificially, self Selfishly, selfishly, as ourself. Okay, that's why I'm saying that, as ourself. And notice Jesus' response to the lawyer's answer. Verse 28, 10-28. You have answered correctly. Ah, nailed it. A for the day. You got it. You nailed this one right on the head. The literal word for correctly is the Greek word from which we get our English word orthodox. Orthodox means straight doctrine. Orthodoxy is straight doctrine. You got it straight. You have, you're straight on your doctrine. That's true. You did it. Now you must know the truth. The truth with regard to loving God and loving your neighbor. You know it. But that's not enough. Now, Jesus says at the end of verse 28, you must do it. That's what he says. Do this and you will live. Do this and you will live. Love God supremely and love your neighbor selfishly, sacrificially. Love him as yourself and you will live. Um, test time. 
what is it that if you're driving, you must do in order to avoid a speeding violation? What is it? Go the speed limit. You are correct. Do this and you'll avoid it. But do we do this? <laughs> no. Uh, most of us do not do this. We violate the speed limit. We know the truth, but we don't do the truth. Jesus is concerned here, this man, and here today, January 5th, 2020, with us, not only in our orthodoxy, but in our orthopraxy, not only in our straightness of doctrine, but in our straightness of practice. Does our practice match our profession? Is what we do consistent with what we say? That's what Jesus is concerned. And Jesus commends the lawyer's awareness of the truth, but he challenges his application of the truth. In John chapter 14, verse 15, we'll put this on the screen. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. How do we know if we love God with all our heart and our neighbor? Well, we love God when we do what he says. So how do we love God supremely? I'm going to look at both of them. How do we love God supremely? That's the first part of that answer. And then how do we love our neighbor as ourselves? Well, how is it that we love God supremely? That's what God calls us to. The text suggests a couple of things, I think. You can evaluate it. First of all, to love God fully, we must know God personally. Look at, if you will, verse 27, and he answered and said, you shall, you, who, who, you. Pronouns are purposeful. You shall love the Lord, your God. So personal indicates a personal choice of reverence and willful submission and surrender and obedience to God. It's Love for God is not something we inherit from our parents. Yesterday was Art Westfall's funeral. And the picture's up, and it was kind of interesting. You walk by, and you say, whoa, that looks a lot like... And then, I won't say their names to embarrass them, but some of his grandsons. Uh, there's there's this, this resemblance in, in art. The grandsons had nothing to do with their resemblance to their grandfather. That just came by genetics. But to love God is something that's completely different than an inherited trait or a, a inheritance of money. It's something that is a work of God. It is personal. And then the love is particular. You shall love the Lord your God. A personal and internal commitment to the one true God to serve Him and to walk with Him in submission to Him. You see, God gave us a capacity to know him. But we don't naturally seek him. That's the thing. You do, okay, love the Lord your God. How do you try to do that? I submit to you that it's impossible for us to love God supremely unless we know God personally. We have a capacity to, to know God, but we don't naturally seek him. Look at Romans chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. It says, there is none who understands, there is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is no, no one who does good, there is not even one. We don't naturally seek God. I mean, we're rebellious, we're treasonous people. That's what the Bible tells us. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way. 
we're, we're out there doing our own thing, right? So we're not seeking God. We deserve his punishment. We're incapable of loving God until we have experienced his initiating love towards us. I can't love God until I have experienced his love for me. And I experience what he's done for me. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10 says that herein is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice. That's the propitiation. That's the fancy theological word, which means that God's son took upon himself the wrath that we deserved. If you went a little further in 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, a verse I think I'll refer to a little bit later, it says we love because he first loved us. I can't love unless I've been loved. I can't give what I don't have. So we need to understand that God's heart for us, and this was uh, one of the things that was uh, really, I thought, brought out well yesterday in the funeral, is that God's heart for us is love. God loves us. He loves us so much that he sent his son Jesus Christ to take upon himself the punishment that we deserve for our sins and so that we could be escape the judgment and live, have eternal life. We could love God with all our heart and love our neighbor as ourselves. And for any of us to live and therefore love, we must repent and believe that God's son Jesus paid the debt we owe. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. I cannot love God fully until I have received his love. And I cannot love others sacrificially until I understand what it is to be loved and to experience that love sacrificially. If we know God personally, we'll, we'll seek to love him supremely. That's the point. I can't love God until I've been loved by God and experienced that love. And then once I have been experiencing God's love for me, then I will want to know him more and express my love more fully to him. That's my understanding of it. And you see this when he says, love, what is it? Love is a present tense verb. It says, you shall love. It means it's permanent. It's ongoing. It's, it's non, not ceasing. It doesn't stop. It's unswerving devotion, unrelenting service, uninterrupted obedience. That's, we just keep going. We just keep loving God. You know, if you're a Hawkeye fan or a Cyclone fan, you, you're just, you just do. You're just a fan. Know, whatever you can pick your own team. You're just a fan. You know it doesn't matter whether they lose to uh, some no-name team by like Florida A&M or you know whatever. It just you just you're just a fan. You just you're there. If we're one of God's children, we are growing in our devotion to God, and this love is passionate, with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength. I can't. You know I was sitting there on New Year's Day. That's about the only time I I, I watch more football on New Year's Day. So I'm sitting there watching, man, you know, he's watching Rose Bowl, and you look at all of those people that traveled from Wisconsin who spent thousands of dollars to get their tickets and to get the transportation. I mean, these people are passionate about Badger football, you know. They, they proved it by their investment in that thing. And I think, how is it that you and I become more passionate about walking with God in 2020 
ways that we weren't before. They were sold out. How can I love God more intensely and more intentionally? I'm just going to give you some suggestions that I think will be helpful that I'm going to try to implement. I didn't make my New Year's resolutions. They're just things I'm going to try to do. First of all is to obey willingly. I mean, what do we know we're supposed to do? Then do that. We make the Christian life so complicated. Because the Word of God says, if we do what we know, we'll know God better. Now, that's not a quote of a Bible verse. The, the Bible verse is uh, John 14, 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is that loves me. And he who loves me will be loved of my Father, and I will love him and disclose myself to him. If I obey, I get to know God better. I remember in 2007, I was in Hungary on a mission trip, and this was one particular mission trip that I had taken, and none of my family members had been with me. I had made an intentional effort to take my family with me when I went on these mission trips because I wanted us to share this experience. I wanted us to serve together, and I was there. And I had decided ahead of time to spend a few extra days visiting some friends that I had made while I was in Hungary. And you will not remember, but in 2007, this was a period of time in which there was a high alert for terrorism for anyone flying through the London Heathrow Airport because there had been uh, bombs that had been placed on some planes headed for America without passengers on the planes. And so I had said goodbye to the rest of the team and then spent a couple of extra days, and I was flying through Heathrow Airport on the way back to the United States. What's really fascinating, I have been there many, many times, never gone through Heathrow before. When I got my ticket confirmation three months prior, I had called and said, what's going on? Why can't I change this? I mean, I've gone through Frankfurt. I've gone through Dusseldorf. I've gone through Munich. I've gone, why do I, why am I going through? No, nope, can't change it. God knew. So there I am by myself. And I had been gone for over two weeks and I desperately wanted to see my family. I wanted to see my wife and my three kids. I just wanted to be home. And I remember laying on a bed in a, a place in Kapishvar, Hungary, and just reading. I, got, I was sitting up and I read Isaiah 41.10. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will help you. Surely I will strengthen you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. I said, okay, God. I'm going to trust you with this. And I did. I had to fly through Heathrow, and it was a nightmare, and I can go into that detail sometime. But I, I, I could only take, they, would, they let me take my Bible and a pencil on the plane. That's it. I got to check in. I had all my, my you know, carry-on bag. No, it has to be in the luggage. They checked for every person who was on the flight with every bag that was in the belly of the plane. If you didn't have a, a person with a bag, no, not going. God got me through. I got to know God better. 
because I had been obedient to follow him and serving him on that mission trip. And that's what I see God. He will help us get to know him better by obeying willingly. Then we seek God intentionally. This Bible reading plan that we're promoting and encouraging is intended to help us seek God intentionally, to get to know him. His word is where he reveals himself to us. In John chapter 17, verse 17, sanctify them by thy word, truth. Thy word is truth. Are we going to be, get to know God better through his word? And then pray sincerely. We're in Luke chapter 10. If you just went over to chapter 11, verses 9 and 10, very familiar passage. Ask and you shall receive. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door shall be opened to you. God, I want to love you more sincerely, more intentionally, more intensely. Okay, well then why don't you just ask me to help you? Because you're not doing it on your own. That's how we do it. And then, so how do we love our neighbor sacrificially? That's how we love God. More supremely, how do we love our neighbor self, selfishly as yourself? Well, first of all, it's a, it's a commitment. It's an internal commitment to serve and seek the well-being of others. Like I would seek that well-being for myself. I mean, you're all going to go eat, right? When we get done here, you're going to find some place to eat, whether it's home or somewhere else, you're going to go eat. Well, what our neighbors need to eat. You all want to be encouraged. You like to be ask people how you're doing. You want to know how you're doing. You need help with doing stuff. It's nice to have somebody help you. Well, we all have people that we can minister to. And that's what we need to commit to. Then the power to do it. Only, and this is the thing I'm going to say here, is you love your neighbor as yourself. That's why I think they, they go together. Love God and then love your neighbor because I can't love my neighbor unless I love God. The power... To love my neighbor sacrificially comes from the sacrificial love of Christ that has been poured out for me and that is indwelling within me. Because only as I understand the love of Christ, not just as a comfort to me, not just as an encouragement to me, not just as a blessing to me, but as the power of the Spirit of God working in me to sacrificially serve and sacrifice myself for others as Christ did for me, will I love my neighbor as myself. Listen to what Andrew Murray says in his book, Absolute Surrender. He says, and how can I learn to love? Never until I begin to learn that God is love and to receive it, to receive his love as an indwelling power for self-sacrifice to see that my glory is to be like God and like Christ in giving up everything in myself for my fellow man. Isn't it interesting that we talk about the love of God and we like to, oh, God loves me and and I feel encouraged by that, and we should feel encouraged by that. But do we ever see that the love of God is not just something to receive, but it's also something that empowers us to give? That's what Murray's talking about. Loving God and others is the fruit of faith. Loving God and loving others is the fruit of faith in the lives of those who possess eternal life, not the path to eternal life. It's not like the lawyer said, I can do it and then I gain it. No, you can't. Do it unless you have gained it. I can't love God and I can't love others unless I am in the kingdom. But if I'm in the kingdom, then I'll live. So Jesus says, do this and you'll live. Well, yeah, but it's not that if I do it, I will live. If I do it, I am alive. The lawyer knew what to do. What did Jesus tell him? Just do it. Just do it. What God required, Jesus admonished, do this and you will live. And so we see the clarification of to whom we're called to be a neighbor. See, it's this whole Good Samaritan thing is at the behest of the lawyer. 
what do I do? We, we, we're confirmed we're supposed to love our neighbor. Now, who is our neighbor? That's the big question that the lawyer asked. There's the, the cause for this clarification. Look at verse 29. And wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and, and who, who is my neighbor? Now, as you read through this, and I've been challenged by this myself, and even more so, like in the last few hours, you know, like last night and this morning, it's like, I'm a lot more like the lawyer than anybody else in the story. When you read the parables of, of Jesus, isn't it interesting, like the, the elder son in the story of the prodigal son? You know, us religious folks, we're the elder son. We're just ticked off that you know, the dad was so nice to the jerk of a son. Yet we're jerks, and God's nice to us. And we're mad that he's nice to some other jerk. So the lawyer says, oh yeah, by the way, so who's my neighbor? Wishing to just, that's what the text says, wishing to justify himself. By limiting the requirements of the law, you know, boxing in who my neighbor is, and therefore limiting his responsibility to obey the law, he hoped to justify himself. Well, I do that, so I must have eternal life. I had a friend one time, he was going 110 miles an hour when the police pulled him over. 110. He was racing home for a family emergency. And he desperately tried to justify himself by restricting the requirements of the law to those people who weren't traveling for an emergency. You know, speed limit's only for people not in an emergency situation. Therefore, he would be outside the limits of and his responsibility to obey that would be limited. Uh, the police officer didn't really agree with him. Isn't it tempting to redefine who my neighbor is? To help me feel a little bit better about my dereliction in really caring for other people? The lawyer, wishing to justify himself. The expert held a restricted interpretation. His neighbor was only fellow Jews and, and those who had were, you know, natural resident aliens of, of Jude, Judaism or in, of Palestine, so he was fine. But his attempt at justification proves his dereliction because Jesus changed the whole dynamic, and we'll see it in a few moments, because he asked, who is my neighbor? And Jesus says, who was the neighbor? In verse 36. What, what's, the, what's the content of his clarification? How does Jesus clarify? What's Jesus' answer to him? Who is my neighbor? Well, you know the story. I read the story. I'm not going to recount the story. I'm going to give you a summary of the story that I read. It's kind of my reworking of a summary that was written by Howard Marshall. The story of the Good Samaritan contrasts. Now, here's what it does. It contrasts the lack of compassion shown by two religious people. These religious members of, of the, the high, uppity-up religious community towards an unfortunate victim with the response of compassionate love from the most unlikely of people in their minds. 
a Samaritan. Because the Samaritans and Jews did not like each other at all. There was open hostility. And so this is a comparison between the lack of compassion from those who were the religious people who knew the law, who were intended and supposed to keep the law, versus someone who was outside of their purview, and he was a Samaritan. And that's the nature of the story. All I want to call your attention to right now is look at this. A certain man went up, went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Who is a certain man? Probably a, a, a Jewish man. Then there was a certain priest and a certain Levite. Now, that's what the text says. I'm not making this up. A certain priest and a certain Levite. These are the religious members of the religious community. And then a certain Samaritan. Uh, we'll pick up the story with the certain Samaritan. What did the certain Samaritan do when he saw the man? The least priest and Levite went on the other side. The certain man, the certain Samaritan, in verse 33 he was on a journey. He came upon him, and what did he do? He felt compassion. The, the word for compassion, uh, splachna, means your intestines, okay? So it was a visceral reaction. He was empathetic with the guy. He cared about the person. There was a visceral response that resulted in action. What did he do? And then you can read the story, but what did he do? He came to the guy. Then he took of his own clothes and bandaged the man. Then he, he poured on the man oil to soothe the wounds. He poured on his own wine to disinfect the wounds. He got the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn and paid for the inn and cared for him that night and then gave the innkeeper money so that the guy would be taken care of in the ensuing days and then said, if there's anything else, I'll pay for it when I get back. Wow. He was merciful despite the hostility between the Jews and the Samaritans. He's a lot like my Uncle Tom. Um, my Uncle Tom's funeral was a few weeks ago, and my Uncle Tom, bless his heart, he just had a heart of compassion. There would be a down and out. I remember this one guy that he used to take with him. He would, he would find the most unlikely of companions. I mean, the people that you and I would go, ooh, I, I, I want to stay about as far away from that guy as I can. And my uncle, he'd say, yeah, you need a job. You need, come on, you can help me. He took this guy that he was, he was kind of like the town bums. And he'd take him with him on long journeys to Kansas and Wyoming and Montana to buy cattle. Because he wanted the companionship and he would provide for him. He was a heart of compassion. And that's what this Samaritan had towards this Jewish man that the priest and Levite didn't. That's the content of Jesus' statement and answer. And then we see what he does next is he brings it to a conclusion, an arresting revelation. Look at verse 36. He asked the lawyer, which of these two men was a neighbor to the one in need? Now notice, go back to verse 26. And what is the lawyer asking Jesus? Oh, I'm sorry, verse, verse 29. And who is my neighbor? That's the focus on the object of compassion. Now Jesus changes it and he says, no, let's talk about the subject who expresses compassion. Don't ask me who is your neighbor. Answer the question, who was the neighbor? And it's not who is my neighbor, it is to whom and to what degree will I be neighborly. That's the point that Jesus is driving to this man and he's driving to us. 
our neighbor is anyone in our path that we can be of assistance to. We need to understand that Bob Goff has written the book, Love Does. Love does. And then we see here in the text that love costs. It costs me to be neighborly. It costs my time. It costs my energy. It costs me some of my material resources. It costs me convenience. It costs me comfort. It can cost me a lot of things. Many of you have, have been neighborly to, to my family in our transition here to Urbandale. Poured out your, your love and your grace and your mercy and your expertise and your help and your assistance. And you've been neighborly. And all I hear Jesus saying to this man is, you be neighborly. And the question is for us to be neighborly. Notice what Jesus says in verse 37, the beginning of it. He says, and the, the lawyer answers, the one who showed mercy. Notice how he didn't say, oh, it was the Samaritan. No, he's not going to say that. It was the one who showed mercy. Yeah, what a convicting revelation. It was this guy who we would never expect it. The one we would deem to be evil has been the, the star of the show. He's been the star of the show. He, like all of us, is forced to realize that loving others is about being neighborly, not redefining who my neighbor is. And he challenges us to be doers of the word. That's the last statement Jesus says. This is, Jesus commands us. Not only does he confirm that we're to be neighborly, not only does he clarify to whom we're to be neighborly, but Jesus commands us to be neighbors, okay? To be merciful neighbors. Verse 37, the end of it says, go and do the same. Just do it. Go and do the same. I want you to look at this little video clip. What is going on in here? It's okay, relax. Watch this. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Hey, Dave. Wow. Is that your agent? It's the jingle. Try it. Uh, no. Like a good neighbor. Okay. Some of you are too young to remember those commercials. But what God is calling us to do is to be a good neighbor. I mean, if State Farm can be there, uh, then, then we should be there. And it's not a State Farm commercial, okay? So I'm not putting in an ad for them, okay? But God wants us to be there. I just ask myself, you know, who is it that I should be a neighbor to? To whom should I be a neighbor? And I thought of this. You can look it up and I was gonna, I don't have time to show the clip, but Brandon Heath has written a song that says, give me your eyes. We ask the Lord to give us his eyes. To see the brokenhearted, to see the needy, to see the hurting. Give me your eyes for just one second. Give me your eyes that I can see. Give me your love for humanity. In 2020, I hope and I pray that myself and each one of us and all of us at Creekside would be more consistent in being good neighbors. That we would love our neighbors. That we wouldn't try to define who they are. We would just love the people that we see in need. We would understand that there are people, yeah, they would really be encouraged by a batch of cookies or a meal or some child care or help unclogging the drain or help with their yard work or whatever it is that God brings to mind that we see around us. And this could be my 
your, not me, but it could be your hairdresser. It could be your uh, store clerk. It could be somebody who is your actual neighbor. It could be your boss. It could be a coworker. Be there. Let us be good neighbors. Like a good neighbor, let us be there. Sacrificially and selfishly, like ourselves, loving them and being the good neighbors that God wants us to be. To show the skeptical and the critical and the cynical unbelievers in the world that this thing about Christianity is real. So that we can build goodwill. So that we're able to share good news with the lost and dying world around us. And some of you are here this morning and maybe you say, well, I don't know about all this Jesus stuff and I'm not sure that I want to be a good neighbor and all that stuff. And Christians are all hypocrites anyway. And he says, welcome to the clinic for the, those, the hypocrites in uh, recovery. Okay, we're, we're all recovering hypocrites. Okay, so we're in recovery. So just, you know, join us by putting your trust or faith so that you can only love God and only have eternal life. If you are loved by God, then you can love God and love your neighbor. And that's what we want. That's what Jesus wants. That's what God wants is that us to be in the kingdom. And then we're able to love as God loved us. And so when, when, we, when we break bread and we drink the cup, which we do every week at the end of our service, all we're doing is we're declaring that God has loved us and we're accepting of God's love for us so that we can love him more and love neighbors as ourselves. That's what we want to do that propels us and that it's his love in us that is the power for us to do it. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for uh, the challenge from your word and I pray for myself that the love of God for me, the love of God that I have experienced through personal faith or trust in Jesus would not just be a comfort to me, not just be an encouragement to me, but that I would receive it by the power of the Spirit of God as the, the power of God in me to enjoy the blessedness of being like you and loving others sacrificially as Christ loved us, as you loved us. God, as we break this bread, as we drink this cup, anyone here who knows Jesus, I pray that they would be welcomed and enjoy the opportunity to partner with us and commune with us. Help us take some moments and just examine our hearts and just ask you to search us that we might know who those neighbors are, those people are that we should be neighbors to. And help us to be alert in every moment of every day to do that for your glory and the gain of your kingdom. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Free.